Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By the end of this podcast, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now, AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Here's my friend and colleague, Kara Swisher, to tell you more. HBO's Silicon Valley is as timely as ever as Pied Piper founder Richard Hendricks pivots to build a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. But as the saying goes, new internet, new problems. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. I watch it every week. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. Before we get to talk to my Pulitzer Prize winning guests, one quick ask from you. Tell someone about the show. You know how to tell people about the show because you know how to use Twitter and Facebook and email. And that is the end of my pitch. Welcome, Emily Steele from the New York Times. Thank you. Normally, I ask my guests, how do I pronounce your name? I know how to pronounce your name. It's pretty basic. I've known you for a while. Here's my question. Am I pronouncing Pulitzer correct? You know, my dad had the same question this week. He said, is it Pulitzer or is it Pulitzer? I used to go Pulitzer. I say Pulitzer. Well, if you say Pulitzer, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. You win. Well, congrats. Thank you. Thank you. You're one of the uh, one of the team at New York Times who won for public service. That is the there are many Pulitzer Prize awards. That's the best one, right? You can say that. I can say that. You can say that. Uh, for the work you did um, focusing on sexual harassment at uh, Fox News and later at Vice, am I missing anything? Those are the those are the those, those are the big ones, right? Yeah, those were the big ones. That's, what, um, that's and what the I Times did. in general, right? Uh, obviously called out for the work with the Weinstein stuff and 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 all the amazing work you guys did over the years. Sort of a group award, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was the coverage of Bill O'Reilly and Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. and uh, the auto workers in Ford and restaurants here in New York. It was pretty comprehensive. So there were many reporters and, and people who worked on this on this package. Yeah, yeah it was the, a whole team. Of, but you're one of the ones who got to give up and give a speech, so you're you're first among equals, or one of the first among equals. Well, and um, so kind of the way this all got started was. Back in the summer of 2016, I don't know if you remember, but there was this really big lawsuit where Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox News anchor, had filed suit against Roger Ailes. Right. This led to Ailes leaving, right? That led to his departure. I think it was like 12 days after she filed suit. But it was this huge media story of the summer. Everybody was chasing it. Gabe Sherman was coming out with scoop after scoop after scoop. And we were trying to figure out how can we get ahead of the story. And so Dean Bacay, the executive editor of The Times, called this meeting in August of 2016, and he had remembered this case of this woman named Andrea Macris, who had, who was a young producer who had worked on Bill O'Reilly's show and had sued him for sexual harassment in 2004. And Dean had worked at the Los Angeles Times when this whole story erupted. Right. And he, I think he remembered seeing a video or just remembering the story. And he had remembered that there had been tapes of some conversation and he had remembered there had been a big settlement. And so he said, why don't you guys go and re-report what had happened then to see kind of what this means in the context of what we Something know we don't often do enough as journalists is go backwards. Exactly, exactly. And so um, I was paired up with Michael Schmidt, who is a reporter who's based in D.C. He's 
amazing. He's the best reporter I've ever worked with. Just curious, how does that work, right? Because you're a media reporter. I'm you're a, a media business reporter. reporter. It yeah. makes sense that they task you with going after Fox News, right? That's straightforward. Right. And, and I had been covering this story. I was right. all over. I've been writing about the media for almost 12 years now. Yeah. Michael Schmidt, as anyone who reads the New York Times knows or listens to the Daily Podcast, is a D.C.-based reporter who's doing a ton of stuff on James Comey, right. all the Russia stuff. Yeah, yeah. How does that? How does that pairing work? You know, I have no idea how we were paired up together or why we were paired up together. Um, I think we actually should ask our editors this (laughs) because it was a really great pairing. And um, my editor, Bill Brink, in the speech in the newsroom earlier this week, he he mentioned uh, how kind of we came from these different worlds where Mike was from the world of Washington where there's just kind of um, so much – ambition and um, just like big personalities. And he was kind of making a joke, like how these worlds are too different, but actually they're pretty similar. Yeah, it sounds like New York. Right, right. And it's interesting. Like I'm, um, we're we're both pretty ambitious and really persistent reporters and kind of we take um, our approach and our strategy to stories is is a little bit different. And I maybe have a softer approach and I have a uh-huh. higher pitched voice and yeah. I'm pretty sweet. And he is very, very persistent and um, much more aggressive. And I think I'm aggressive too, but in a, in a sweeter yeah. way. Um, but I think kind of like, guy. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, was, so they send you off on this mission. Yeah, so they send this us off the on this summer story. of 2016. Yep, the summer of 2016. And we're reporting, reporting, reporting all about this one case from 2004. Meanwhile, you're doing your day job. A little bit, but this was a top priority. So the editors were like, focus on this. If the question is this versus something else that's breaking, do this. Right. But then, what was the big story? The Time Warner AT&T merger broke in the middle of this. So then I kind of left to cover that. And I think the Viacom CEO is ousted in the middle of this. So then I left to cover that story. But when I wasn't writing those stories, we were kind of reporting, 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 making all these phone calls, knocking on doors. And we found that it wasn't just this one woman, that this story was a much bigger and broader story, and that there had been over the course of Bill O'Reilly's tenure at Fox News, what we now know, um, there were six settlements that we know total uh, at least $45 million involving allegations of sexual right, harassment. Right, either he paid out directly or Fox or paid for him. Did. yeah. And the story comes out then in February. The story came out actually in April no, of— okay. Um, yeah, it's it has, yeah. it's like only been a year of 2017. It was published on April 1st. It was in the paper on April 2nd, which is my birthday, so I remember it really well. And it was um, it was it really set off. I'm I'm sure you remember it set off the, this like huge controversy yep. where there was advertising boycott. There were there was an airplane that flew across New York City with uh, that had this banner that said "Drop O'Reilly, the sexual predator." There were people who were protesting outside of Fox News, and it was 18 days after our story published on April 19th, so actually this very same week, that O'Reilly was ousted. Um, and and it's it's still sort of astonishing to, to think about this, um, but just for context, Bill O'Reilly was as powerful as he'd ever been, and he's one of, had been one of the most powerful people in TV. And what he wasn't on the wane. This wasn't. No, he we'll talk was, about Harvey Weinstein in a minute, yeah. but it was, like Harvey Weinstein had, had peaked many years ago. Bill O'Reilly was as powerful as he'd ever been. Confident of Donald Trump, Donald Trump's oh, ascendant, right? He, so the, yeah, you were he at, had the, at the t- most. 
He had the top-rated show on all of cable news. His placement, he was at the 8 o'clock hour on Fox News, and that really kind of was the anchor of that whole primetime lineup. He had just renewed his contract in um, a a couple of months earlier for $25 million a year. His show pulled in hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising. He was um, really at at the peak of of his career. And his persona is is that sort of he's a bully and— and everyone who sort of talked to him off air, and I, I wrote a story about him years ago, he's a difficult person to deal with even when he's not on. It's not just a show, right? So what is it like reporting a story about someone like that that is that important to a company as big and powerful as Fox was at the time? How many roadblocks get thrown up in front of you? Oh, it was it was hard. It was um, – I mean, there were, there were a couple of things that – were, I mean, the whole story was entirely difficult. Yeah. It took us eight months to get this into the paper. And one of the one of the biggest roadblocks was that um, all of these women who had these settlements had been silenced. They were locked into these confidentiality agreements. The punishments for breaking those agreements were penalties where they would pay, they would have to pay millions and millions of dollars. Right. The... Um, and pretty pretty early into the reporting, Bill O'Reilly's lawyer came and visited the New York Times and said that we were trying to create a story where there was none. They told us that Bill, there was no record of uh, any woman at Fox News ever reporting any issues of sexual harassment to the Fox News legal department or to the HR department. There was just... The the company really, really fought back against this. O'Reilly really fought back against this. There were these settlements that made it so that people involved in those agreements were not able to talk. Right, these NDAs, which, again, we're now sort of familiar with, but people didn't sort of realize how difficult these things were to get around. Exactly. And how much they prevented the kind of reporting you ended up doing. And not only did they make it hard to report these stories, but what a lot of critics of these NDAs say is that they make it possible for perpetrators to continue their behavior because there's no record because nobody knows that it happened right and the other the other huge thing that was really difficult about all of this reporting is that we were doing it a year before the me too movement really had kicked off and so Women did not want to talk about these stories. For a lot of people that we talked to, this was the first time that they had really articulated this. They hadn't told their friends. They hadn't told their family. People didn't think that they would be believed if they told these stories. They thought it would jeopardize their career. in addition to all the the standard reasons you wouldn't want to talk about a sexual harassment story that you were involved in, you know, Professionally, it's very damaging. It's embarrassing to you personally. You may not want to relieve it. There's real legal things and, and, and difficult financial penalties that prevent you from doing it. So how did you get these women to talk to you on the record? You have photographs of some of them in some cases. You know, in the original O'Reilly story, there was only one woman that we could get to talk on the record. And it's kind of a funny story. I've told it a bunch. Um, I know. I'm setting you up. <laughs> everybody loves this one. Um, so so basically, Mike and I were trying to figure out what is the pattern. Because we had met with 
a couple of lawyers and just to try to understand sexual harassment law and kind of why people act like this. And what people told us is that it's very rare that somebody gets to their 60s to kind of the end of their career and then all of a sudden that they start acting like this. Usually there's a pattern to this behavior. And so we started to see, look at the cases that we knew about and see what the women had said. And they had said that they usually had either worked with O'Reilly or appeared as a guest on his show, and they would start to kind of develop this relationship with him where he would offer them career advice or offer to help them advance with their careers. And then he would start making these unwanted advances toward them, and they felt like if they said anything that their He's careers would be in jeopardy. Hook, yeah. Right? And then that's what these women said. And so— we started to kind of look and we saw that there were a couple of women who had appeared as regular guests on his show and then kind of disappeared. And there were some stories of allegations around them. And so we pulled up the IMDB, the International Movie Database, and we printed out, it was this pretty big document of all of the people who had appeared as guests on his show. And we just really started, I call it dialing for dollars. We just started going through the list and calling person after person, all of the men and all what's of your, the what's women. What's your line? Hi, I'm Emily Stewart from the New York Times. I wanted to know if Bill O'Reilly harassed you. You know, no. Yeah. <laughs> I said, hi, my name is Emily Steele. I'm a reporter at the New York Times. I'm looking into the experiences of women at Fox News and would really love to talk to you. I can understand why you might be hesitant to talk to a reporter, but give me a call and um, I can explain more about what I'm working on. So you make dozens and dozens and dozens of those calls. Exactly. And then I get a call from this woman named Wendy Walsh. And she is um, pretty breezy. She's a former journalist turned psychology professor who had appeared as a regular guest on O'Reilly's show and then kind of all of a sudden disappeared. And so we had called her as one of these groups of women just to see what um, what her story was. And so she called me back. She was walking out of a class that she teaches, and she thought that I wanted to interview her as an expert, um, kind of like a behavioral expert mm-hmm. about why people do this sort of thing, why why do people sexually harass other people. And then Did I said, you know she'd been harassed? No. Or you're just guessing. You're just she's one of a gazillion she's one women of all who'd these been on the people, show. And we were just talking to as many people as we right. could who had been on the show or who were kind of around that world just to see like had they experienced anything, had they seen anything, had they did they know stories of other people who had seen anything. And so I, I said, No, 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 no I, I don't want your advice about this, but I'm actually kind of curious about what your experiences were like with Bill O'Reilly. So she told me this whole story about how she had been on his show. She lives in L.A., and so he was flying out to L.A. His secretary asked if she wanted to get dinner. They went out to dinner, and during the dinner, he told her that she was that he was friends with Roger Ailes, who was then the chairman and very powerful head of Fox News, and that he would get her a job. He could get her a job as a contributor on the show, which can pay hundreds of thousands of yeah. dollars a year. She's a single mom. She needs money. She's very excited about this opportunity. They kind of continue with their dinner. At the end of the dinner, he asks her to go up to his hotel suite. She says no. His behavior all of a sudden changes. He, One of the lines in the story was he told her that her purse was ugly. Yeah, it's great. Um, and, then he, and then they kind of go their separate ways. And then pretty soon after that, she is not on the show anymore. And she never really appears on the network again. So she tells me the whole, this whole story. And then she says, that's off the record. I really, I can't deal. Was she bound to an NDA? She was not. She was not. Okay. No. And so she told me this whole story, but she said, you know, I 
I just don't want to talk about this. Nothing good can come about yeah. talking of this. It's And there's a version of journalism where she tells you a story that says that was off the record. You can say, no, no, I want to run you it. Know, but generally, you She might have told don't. me that. She right. probably said in the beginning, she okay. said, let's just talk off the record. I'll tell you this thing. And But I didn't want to surprise anybody. I don't want to shock anybody. I wasn't out to get them. I yeah. just wanted to know, kind of follow the facts and figure out what the story was. So I said, okay, I get it. I get it. Um, but is it okay if I give you a call back? So I call her back. She still doesn't want to go on the record. I call her back. Still doesn't want to go on the record. I call her back. She still doesn't want to go on the record. And kind of at this point in our reporting, Mike and I thought that we thought that there had been a number of settlements, but we really thought it would be powerful to have somebody in the story who could talk about this. And so I tell her, I call her back again, and then I tell her I'm going to come out to L.A. and would she see me? And she says, you know, I'm I'm really busy. I teach this class. I'm, I have an advertising shoot because she appears in some commercials. I'm doing this Pilates class. And I said, oh, well, I love Pilates. Can I come and take it with you? And so then I show up. I think it was a Tuesday morning. Uh, um, and I'm on the Pilates reformer machine next to her. And then— we, are, you a, are you a Pilates enthusiast? You know, I like to run, and I do a lot of bar classes. Yeah. And I do some Pilates classes. So you weren't, you weren't entirely faking it? No, 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 no not at all. No, you show up. She knows you're there. She, she, you're not just showing up no, one day yeah. randomly next to her. No, okay. she knows that I'm coming. And um, I mean, she told me which class and what yeah. hour she's she's going to take this Pilates class. And so then afterwards, I ask if she wants to get coffee. And so we um, we're in Venice Beach, is where the studio was. And so we walk kind of down the street and we go get coffee. And I just tell her a little bit about the reporting about how we think that there have been a number of women who had allegations against O'Reilly who made these allegations and then were silenced and and locked into these confidentiality agreements. And then I told her she still has a voice and that's powerful. And she kind of looks at me and she says that she's going to talk about this on the record. She's going to go on the record with her story. And she says that she wanted to do it for two reasons. One, because she wants men to know how to treat people in the workplace and how to treat people with with respect. And two, she really wants to do this for her daughter so that they don't have to face the same sort of issues that she had to face. So, so in, in the old days, we called the shoe leather reporting. Yeah. And this is now reformer Pilates, Pilates reporting. reporting. Yeah. Um, that is a great story. It's worth it, telling many times. It was just like, it was one of those moments, too, because I, I, mean, I can't understate how hard this reporting was and how many people didn't want to talk. And to, so to get somebody who was yeah. willing to share their story and was brave and willing to go on the record with this, it was just like, I think I started crying. I ran back to the hotel room and I called Mike and called the editors and it really it was thrilling. How much of that story do you think is not just you being able to do Pilates, right, but you being Emily who's small and has a high-pitched voice and is super friendly and, most importantly, is a woman. Could, could, do you think Michael Schmidt's a very good reporter? Do you think he could have gotten her to speak on the record? Do you, how much of this is do you think sort of your personality matched with your gender allows you to do this kind of work? That's a really good question. You know, it was interesting because um, Mike and I talked. We did a lot of the reporting together. Together. And a lot of times it would be me who would be the one to make the call or uh-huh. knock on the door or show up in front of people's um in their in their Pilates class. And I think um I'm a really good listener and I'm really I am sweet and I am kind of unassuming and I think that that allowed people to trust us. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is that Mike and I had this like huge list of all of these people that we called and 
almost before every single call that we would make, we would talk and we would strategize and we would say, is it better for me to call or is it better for him to call? What can we say to try to get this person to talk? It's very tactical. It was very strategic. Yeah. Like we would, I would, before I call, like most people, I would look at their Instagram, look at what videos they'd been on, just kind of get a sense of who they are and what motivation there might be to talk to us. Because as you know, reporting on Fox News is, is very, very difficult. And a lot of people who are in that world really didn't want to talk to me or couldn't talk to me or feared talking to me. So I really had to figure out why and how I could get them to talk or we could get them to talk. I want to talk so much more about this. Yeah. First, we're going to take a quick break so we can hear from a fine advertiser. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you privately and securely surf the internet at really fast speeds without being tracked by anyone. This may be newly relevant to you. ExpressVPN encrypts your traffic and personal data while hiding your IP address. That means hackers, governments, and internet service providers cannot see what you're doing online. Installing ExpressVPN on all of your devices is as simple as downloading an app. It takes a few clicks to install on your desktop, laptop, smartphone, or tablet. For less than $7 per month, you can safely surf public Wi-Fi hotspots in Starbucks, hotels, and airports without having to worry about having your personal data stolen. To take back your internet privacy today and to find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com media. Here's how we spell that. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash media for three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash media. Don't put it off. Protect your internet and data with ExpressVPN today. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people. So food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Good news, farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. They use Watson and the IBM Cloud, and they provide access to weather data, they analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So, as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. That's good. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. We're back here with Emily Steele from the New York Times, who just finished Pulitzer Week. Which involved a trip to Cincinnati? Yes, that was for the Scripps Howard Award. Different award, but it's still it was part a of different the, award. In the same way, the excitement. Yeah. Do you get to? Is there a physical award you get to touch the the, the Pulitzer, the Pulitzer? Is there you a know, coin? Is there a sash? Is there? I don't know. No, not that you've seen. Not. I think that there is on the fifteenth floor of the New York Times. It's really. Um, amazing. Have you ever been to the New York Times? To yes. the fifteenth floor, and if you walk the down, double the double. Oh, no, no, no. You, you tell me what I'm supposed to see. Okay. Well, when you come up, it's um, it just really, like, it gives you goosebumps when you see it because it's really just a testament to all of the great journalism that this institution has supported over the years. And it's this hall, and it has all of these pictures of, of every single Pulitzer winner back to, I think, 1918, which is the first year that the Times— so now we'll be on that wall. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So the the announcement is was Monday. It was Monday. When did yeah. they tell you? Because you flew up your parents, right? My well, my parents speech. are just in Connecticut, oh, they so drove they down. they drove down. Um, yeah. So it's officially announced on Monday. When do you find out? How far in advance? I can't say. Days. I know you are you are too modest to say this, but did you have a good sense that you were going to get an award for this work? 
It seemed you like know, a foregone conclusion the Times and the New Yorker were going to win in some combination. You know, it's, um, I was going to say I thought a lot about this, but I actually yeah. haven't. But one of the things that I have thought a lot about is just kind of the impact of this reporting. And like what I was saying before, it was so hard to get these people to talk. And it's been such a whirlwind year where there's been so much incredible reporting at the Times and elsewhere yeah. about Silicon Valley and Hollywood and auto workers at a Ford plant in Chicago. And it's just been so amazing to see women feeling like they can tell these stories and come forward with these stories. And so what I have been thinking a lot about all of this, because I uh, in the week before, a lot of my friends were kind of asking, like, yeah. do you think you're going to win? Are you going to win? What do you think? Are, what, and I, I just thought, you know, what is so amazing and really incredible to me is the impact that this work has had. And that's why I decided I wanted to become a journalist. And that's what I always dreamed of being able to do. And so that, that to me, was really the most important. Because let's be honest, right? A lot of the times, really great work is rewarded with the Pulitzer. But outside of the award world, kind of doesn't really have an impact. Some of the right. stuff cynically is even sort of made for awards, right? Right, and right. A lot of people don't even read it. But this this stuff is different. So the chronology was Roger Ailes is booted out summer mm-hmm. of 2016. You guys have your story. Mike and I April start reporting. 2017. In April. And then... Then there's this pause, right? But... Well, so what happened yeah. was, and it was, it's really interesting when you go back and see, go back to April of last year, because women were going on social media and using the hashtag drop O'Reilly to tell their own stories of harassment. And it, the story just kind of resonated in a way that I think might have even surprised a lot of people in the newsroom. And editors decided, you know, this is a huge topic. Let's really pour resources. They could have gone the other way. They could have said, well, of course, Bill O'Reilly is a gross person at Fox News and he worked for Roger Ailes and that's just its own cesspool. And and yes, it's amazing reporting, but it's kind of what we thought if we picked up the rock we'd find. But I think part of the power of the reporting wasn't just that it showed that there was a series of allegations against Bill O'Reilly and that there were $45 million in settlements, but it was that the company knew about this, and the company protected him. And at the same time that the Murdochs had said that they were creating an atmosphere, a workplace based on trust and respect, they made two settlements with women who had allegations against Bill O'Reilly. They knew about a third that they say they don't know the price that we know now is $32 million. And then they renewed his contract for $25 million a year. And so I think what was really powerful about that reporting is that it wasn't just a a person who was accused of bad behavior at the top who was getting away with it, but it was this entire system and this entire culture that was really corrupt. So now there's sort of another marching order, which is to Jody Kander and Megan Toohey, go after Weinstein. Right, exactly. So it was... After after the O'Reilly story, the editor said, "Let's let's start looking into powerful men who might have these." So it wasn't Weinstein stories. specific. It was let's go after a bunch of people we've heard of. Mm-hmm. Go after is the wrong verb, but it's the right verb. Start right? reporting. Start on reporting on these stories we've heard. Facts. Harvey Weinstein yeah. famously was abusive to women. No one was ever able to report it on the record. People sort of flicked at it. They couldn't land the story. David Carr, who we're talking about, right, tried right. to get it, couldn't. Right. Canaletta tried to get it, couldn't. You guys, the Times says, let's go after it again. Right. right. Um, among other stories. Right. So then at that point, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, who 
are just incredible reporters, start looking at Harvey Weinstein. Other reporters start looking, Susan Chira and Katrina Einhorn start looking at Ford. I start reporting on Vice Media, and then I continue reporting. So you were all going at the same time. It wasn't wasn't Weinstein, and then you picked up again. No, and then one of the things, people think that there is kind of this gap between April and October, but my colleague Katie Benner, who was in Silicon Valley and now has moved to D.C. to... Um, report on, I think, the Justice Department there. She did some really incredible reporting over the summer about issues of harassment in Silicon Valley. And so it was right. it was interesting. It was like this chorus of voices of these stories just got louder and louder and louder. It seemed like, um, from, as a reader, like, oh, Harvey Weinstein, which was sort of the white whale, right, of, of harassment and terrible behavior, breaks in the fall, early fall of 2017. And then there's this deluge of stories to the point where if you weren't really thinking about it, you might think, oh, it's easier to write these now because everyone wants to tell their story. Is there some element of truth to that where where it becomes much easier to report these out now that Bill O'Reilly has been taken down, now that Harvey Weinstein has been taken down? You know, it's interesting because I was reporting on the O'Reilly story before and then I started reporting on Vice kind of in maybe in May or June of last year. And it was really – it was still really difficult to do that story and to do the reporting And it was interesting because most of the women that I was talking to in that piece were in their 20s and in their 30s. And I kind of had this idea. I thought it would be a lot easier because I thought it would be young women who— were woke. Who were woke and And, would be okay with talking about this. And and, and a lot of the behavior was out there, right? Like everyone sort of knew that that crazy stuff happened at Vice because that was part of their brand. Right. And that was one of the things that was interesting, too, because people, a lot of people who worked there had to sign this non-traditional workplace agreement where they said that they would be exposed to, like, pornography maybe mm-hmm. on the wall or they're writing and reporting on these explicit material. But it didn't say that they would be subject to harassment. Right. And I think that there's a difference between a wild and crazy place and a place where women say that they're being harassed and abused. So did the work get easier to do after Weinstein? I think that in some ways it did get easier to do because what was so powerful about the Harvey Weinstein reporting was that at that point it was like we had created this foundation of evidence and really hardcore reporting that allowed women to stand on top of that and tell their stories and not only be able to tell their stories, but also people listened and believed them. And I think that was really powerful. Believe them and they had impact. You could see what happened. You could see what happened. But then in addition to that, I think in previous stories, a lot of the people being accused were very powerful prominent men. But with the Harvey Weinstein story, he was a very powerful, prominent man. But a lot of his accusers were famous, 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 famous women. So everybody knows Ashley Judd. Everybody knows Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow. And having their face say and their name and and those very strong, powerful women saying, me too, this also happened to me. It was huge to have celebrities kind of also say this had happened to them. Yeah, there was that period where some of us thought, well, maybe this is only a story because it's Ashley Judd, right? What what happens when it's not famous people? And now we've gone through enough of this that a lot of these stories are being taken seriously. But it it cut both ways. Um, And then, like you mentioned, you you went back to the Bill O'Reilly story 
that fall, um, where basically you, you uncover another giant settlement that, that you referenced before that, that he had paid out himself. Yes. It's an enormous amount of money. $32 million. Um, and that, that Fox knew about but claimed they didn't know about and deliberately sort of averted their eyes to not know about. Well, they say they knew that there was a settlement. They just didn't know how much money it was for. And in the process— But they knew about the allegations. Bill O'Reilly says, I want to talk to you guys. Yes. Did he say, I want to talk to both of you, to you and Mike Schmidt, or I want to talk to the Times? Does he differentiate who he wants to talk to? Because you had, a, you had a, a history with him. Yes. You reported on him before. Right. He's so, to come after you. Right. So in a different era, before I was reporting about sexual harassment, it was the winter of 2015, and there had been this huge scandal with Brian Williams and questions about whether or not he had been accurate in saying that he had been on a helicopter that was shot down yeah. in Iraq. I don't know if you remember uh, this helicopter. Yeah. It's what led him to go off the air. And three so, years ago. It seems like a lifetime. It does. <laughs> aged a lot, I feel like, since then. And in the wake of that story, Mother Jones did an investigation into Bill O'Reilly's claims of war reporting. And they said that he was not a war reporter, but he had claimed that he had reported on the Falklands War, but was really reporting on protests about the Falklands yeah. War. And so anyway, it was, there was this controversy. I had done a pretty straightforward piece about Mother Jones says this, Fox News is defending O'Reilly, he says this, put it in the paper. I think it was a Sunday night for a Monday. And then on Monday, it kind of had erupted into this big story. And so I called Fox News and said, we want to hear what your side of the story is. And O'Reilly calls me a little bit later. And before I say anything, he says that he thought that I so far had been fair, but if I did anything that he found untoward, that he would come after me with everything he had and that I could take that as a threat. Which, by the way, is a, not an unusual thing to hear from someone at Fox News to a reporter. Usually what, that stuff doesn't get printed. What was interesting, though, is it was the first thing that he said, and he did not say it was off right, the right, record. Right, 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 right. So I, was, I had my whole setup. I was at my desk, and I typed up what he had said. I had taken notes, and I said, okay, Mr. O'Reilly, can I ask you some questions now? And then I got off the phone, and yeah. I told my editors about what had happened, and they said, oh, my God, we have, we have to put that in the piece. Which is great. Yeah. So, so back to 2017, you're going to go meet Bill O'Reilly in person. You've been, yes. right, you, you, you won't take credit for this, but your reporting led to him being fired. Now he wants to talk. What, what is your expectation of that conversation? Right. So, gosh, it was a crazy couple of days. We, so Mike and I had done all of this reporting that led to the story in April. But when that story came out, we had heard that there was this other big settlement and when I know about something and I can't figure it out, it's like it bothers me so much. And there's nothing that nothing will stop me from figuring out what that thing is. And so I just kind of I moved on to other stories, but just kind of kept making calls and kind of kept reporting in my spare time. And then we found that there was this other settlement that had been for $32 million. And Mike and I kind of did a whole new round of reporting. And then we went to everybody for comment. We went to Fox News for comment. We told them what we had found and um, wanted to get hear what they had to say. And we did the same thing with Bill O'Reilly. We had um, kind of sent him all of these questions and all of the information, and we wanted to hear what he had to say. With the first round of stories, he had... Uh, we had talked with his lawyers, and he had sent us a statement that we used, but we had never, we did not talk to him with that first story. With this story in October, he said he wanted to talk, right. and I think, 
think we might have sent the questions maybe on like a Thursday or a Friday. I remember Mike called me on Sunday and said they want to they want to talk, they want to meet with us. And so we told Dean Bacay and the editors at the Times, and Dean says, you can talk talk to him, but it has to be both of you, because I think that they wanted to meet with just Mike and not me, and it needs to all be on the record. Why, why do you think they wanted to, to meet just with Mike? Um, I mean, my, what my sources have told me is that they don't like me and that they think that I'm out to get him. So you, and, you, so you knew that, you intuited yes, that and yes. reported that. You know you're going into a hostile. Right. So I am like, yeah, I was very nervous. I had no idea what the, um, well, I just, I just thought that it was going to be a pretty hostile interview and that it was not going to be pleasant. Um, I was really glad that Mike was there with me and we kind of had coordinated, like Mike's going to lead a lot of the questions and do a lot of the like opening and closing parts of the interview and I'll step in and ask him questions as we need. Um, and Mike was like, he came up because he's in D.C. So he took the train up from D.C. I was so worried that his train was going to be delayed and that I'd have to go by myself. And then he comes up and he's just like, breezy, like this is going to be piece of cake. Like, we're just going to sit down and have a nice conversation. Meanwhile, I hadn't eaten since, like, we found out that we were going to do this interview, and I was just, like, So you have your so story nervous. reported, right? Yeah. So your expectation is you don't want him to confirm it. You just want comment, because that's the journalistically appropriate thing to do, is go talk to the person yeah. you're going to write We want to hear what he has to right. say about this. I mean, these are really serious allegations that people are making against them. Right, and but you're, it's, you it, hear, like, for you, it's not a question of, well, if, if he doesn't give it up, we can't run the story. No, you're like, running the story. Right, exactly. And but we want to hear what he has to say. And why do you say. think he wants to talk to you? That is, um, you know, I think he wanted us to hear more of his perspective. And um, he maybe thought that if he... Um, talk to us that maybe we wouldn't run the story or that he would be able to um, like give us a different point of view or a different perspective on why things had happened the way that they had. So you guys record the interview. You play some of it on the Daily Podcast, mm-hmm. which you shall go listen to. It's October 23rd, 2017. Well worth getting into the archives. This is the last bit of conversation that he has with you. We're going to play it for you. This is crap, and you know it. It's politically and financially motivated, and we can prove it with with shocking information. But I'm not going to sit there in a courtroom for, for a year and a half and let my kids get beaten up every single day of their lives by a tabloid press who would sit there, and you know it. So that's pretty much his last words to you, right? Mm-hmm. And you can hear him thumping the table. And yeah, he's. We had. We were sitting down during the interview. Yes. Yeah. You do in a lawyer's conference room. And then we had stood up to leave, and then he put his hands on the table and kind of leaned over. So this is, he's a tall person who's a, a, very who's tall a person. theatrical performer on yeah. camera. And he, he knows can, how to project. He can project. Yeah. So he's doing this to you basically on your way out. Yes. What are you thinking sort of on the way out when those are his last words to you? You're thinking, well, obviously we're going to run the story, but is there any, any inkling of doubt in your mind? Does, does, does that have any effectiveness, that performance? You know, I think that we thought, like, we need to include this in the story. This is this is showing how he's responding to these allegations and this situation. Um, and I think, 
we also kind of went back to the newsroom right away and it, we told the guys and Michael Barbaro at the Daily, like, guys, we got something really good and you need to You, need you, to you have this. that, oh, well, we got something voice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's terrific. It's great. Um, you should go reread all the stories. You should go listen to that Daily Podcast. It's great. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in one minute with Emily Steele. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Here's Kara Swisher again with a word about HBO's Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is back for another season and another pivot. This time, founder Richard Hendricks turns his sights on launching a decentralized internet. With so much focus on data tracking and privacy on the web, this latest turn of events feels eerily relevant. But this should come as no surprise. The comedy has made a name for itself with two real jokes about startup culture. It's the show's attention to detail that feeds the comedy. Every reference is on point, not to mention the fantastic Emmy award-winning cameos from people like me. I'm still waiting for that Emmy, but I really enjoyed being on it, including giving Gavin Belson advice on how to run Hooli. Get new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. And we're back with Emily Steele. I saw the chills from that daily podcast clip we just played. I've been, ex- I've been wanting to play that for months. So. Have you? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you finally won the Pulitzer so we could have you in to talk about it. Um, I wanted to ask about the Vice story briefly. Yeah. So you said you were reporting on this last spring. Mm-hmm. This is like Harvey Weinstein. Vice was something sort of everyone knew about, or at least if you worked at New York media, digital media, you sort of knew there was weird stuff going on. Again, Shane Smith was like yeah. would show up drunk at an advertiser's conference, like not just like tipsy, like on the ground, rolling around drunk. They kind of reveled in it and everyone. And, it, and after O'Reilly came out and then after Weinstein came out, everyone said, oh, well, there's a list of obvious other stories we're going to read. Vice is obviously going to be one of them. So this is going on. Everyone in media is chatting about it. Eventually, people start writing about the fact that you're writing about this. There's a piece in the All, I think, HuffPost. What's it like to have people writing about the story that you're writing but haven't written yet? You know, it was um, a little overwhelming. I, um, well, and, and that story was interesting because everybody knew that there was, it was an edgy culture and there was a lot of hard partying. But I think that there's a huge difference between people being wild and crazy sure. and people harassing women and and abusing them. And I think that that was really what I was trying to show with the reporting, that it wasn't, because it's, it's not a story if there's a edgy media right. company that also kind of people party. But it's if, if there's a line that's crossed, if women say that they're being subjected to harassment, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, so I had been reporting the story and I had heard that there were a number of settlements and it was actually, I was home at my at my fiance's house over Thanksgiving and all of a sudden there's all of these stories that start showing up saying like Emily Steele is doing these is reporting on Vice and um, I think the CNN story had talked to somebody I had talked to and they're like Emily Steele is calling and she's asking questions and now you're not just Emily Steele from the New York Times you're Emily Steele who brought down Bill O'Reilly is going after Vice so oh man are you going to bring it it is like a little funny though because it was like she's asking questions like what was your experience like (laughs) just like a pretty basic question to ask anyway so the thing I was pretty um, upset and it added a lot of pressure I felt like to my reporting um, because what I was really trying to nail at that point was to make sure that I had these different settlements that I was able to ultimately report. And I was trying to get people to go on the record. And I was trying, 
with that story, what we were trying to show is that it wasn't just one, um, it wasn't just that there were accusations against one person, but that it was really kind of across this entire culture. And I thought it was a really powerful story because a lot of the other stories that we had done were about men that were of an older generation. And this was about people who were millennials and younger people. And so I just thought it showed a lot about um, power and these systemic issues and kind of issues with the HR and so anyway, we were really trying to make sure that the, the, the story was fair and it was accurate. I was just trying to kind of get all of this. And it, sometimes you can do these stories as, as fast as you can, but they can't always be rushed. Because there was this sort of thing, what's going on? And for a while, like the longer it took for that story to show up, the more people thought, oh, there must be something amazing going on. Here. Right, right, right. But and I, then, I, 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 would, I could imagine you could say to me, actually, it was kind of helpful because there were people who wanted to talk, but until they knew that I was doing it or maybe they weren't quite aware. Now they felt more they, – they felt that they could talk to well, me. Well, that's what was so interesting. So all of a sudden, it was like we came back from Thanksgiving and then it was like I didn't leave my house I'm not exaggerating for like days, it felt like, because it was was like at seven o'clock in the morning, somebody would call and then I would tell my editor, you know, I'm going to come into work in a minute. So it did open it up. And then it was like call after call after call after call from 7 a.m. until midnight. I was just talking to people and I was trying to kind of just hear their stories. And a lot of, um, it was just like, this, these endless calls and they were all like an hour, two hours long and everybody was like ultimately somebody cried <laughs> that every single call and they all had these really hard stories and um, that they wanted to share. And most of those people that I talked to didn't go on the record with their stories and they were, um, they were really hesitant to do that, but they just wanted to call because they wanted me to know what their experiences had been to kind of back up the other reporting that I had done. So it did kick open some floodgates for you. It's a a very 2018 or at least the last decade or so idea of having someone's story being written about. I guess you can go back to to Monica Lewinsky, right? Was the first high-profile version of like Someone's working on a story and that in itself is a story. Would you write a story about someone writing a story that hadn't been published? I I thought about it a little bit last fall. I don't think that I would do that because— I'm really focused on what I'm reporting. Yeah. Um, and There's a version of this with CBS right now. Right. There's a CBS story supposedly in the works for a long time. The Washington Post has written about it. Other folks have written about it. Everyone's sort of waiting for something. Right, right. I mean, I'd be more inclined to like go do the reporting and see mm-hmm. if I can scoop the story. Yeah. Um, and the story comes out uh, yes. late December, right before Christmas. Yes, right before Christmas. Great story. Thank you. There was a immediate sort of reaction that said, that's it. There's not more. There's not so-and-so's not named. Only this happened. There be, immediately became a Twitter meme where someone said, just tell me all the stuff you want to say and I'll just put it on my Twitter feed. Some people attached their names to it. Some people didn't. What was your reaction to that reaction? You know, it was it was just really fascinating to see kind of – with these stories, there's just such a huge ripple effect. And especially the women at Vice were so, and the men too, are so plugged into social media and the whole media world that it really, there was a lot of criticism. And it was like, there were these very three contrasting sort of points of view. I felt like the reaction to the story, one was, well, that's what we expected. That's all that you got. Yeah. 
too. And the story was really strong. It had four settlements it ha- that involved kind of the, some of the highest executives at the company. And it had a number of women who went on the record to talk about their allegations. And we didn't include any anonymous allegations in the story, which was really strong. So there was one set of people who thought, you know, that's all that she got. There's some people who are quoted saying that there was a lot of kind of expectation about Shane and a story about Shane and that he was the white whale and we didn't get him. Um, But that's not what we're trying to do with our reporting. We're trying to follow the facts and write fair and accurate stories. We're not out to get anybody. Um, The second point of view at the story was, oh, my God, I can't believe it's like that there. This is a terrible culture. These poor girls, what what did they have to go through? Why is it so crazy? corrupt and terrible. And then I felt like the third set was kind of like, oh, that's what we expected. Like, mm-hmm. So It's was, partly, right, a, a burden of, of the reporting, burden created, expectations created by the reporting exactly. you guys had done earlier, right? Right. right. Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., incredible, salacious detail, worse than you imagined in, in a lot of cases. And then Vice is awful, but there's not a Harvey Weinstein story. Right. There's not a Louis C.K. story. In there. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about that story was kind of, it's not how it wasn't just about one powerful man, but it was about this entire culture and also some of these systemic issues that we're really starting to explore. So like what's what's wrong with HR and why did HR protect the powerful men rather than the women who came to them with complaints? And there were some really um, kind of chilling stories about the HR person at Vice who women would go to with these complaints. And she told one of them, the, the woman told me, she said, um, you know, you're a really beautiful woman. This is just going to happen to you during your career. And that, that HR woman previously had worked at a Weinstein company. Some people who were referenced in your story ended up leaving the company. Yes. Um, a few months after you published it in March, Shane Smith, CEO, very high profile, steps down. His replacement is a woman, Nancy DeBoo from A&E. Um, do you think those things are connected to your reporting? That one, Shane stepped down and two, he's replaced by a woman. Um, you know, I think it, it, nothing happens in a vacuum. That is a, that is a uh, politic answer. Speaking of politics, you have a very low profile on, on Twitter. You tweet, but you don't, yeah. you don't mix it up. Some of your colleagues, Maggie Haberman, Rikini, both will fight with people on Twitter and they'll add a lot of reporting in their Twitter. Mm-hmm. Do you think consciously about whether you do or don't want to do that? Uh, Mike Isaac, who I've worked with for a long time, um, uses Twitter as a reporting tool. Please send me tips and stuff. It seems like you don't want to use Twitter that way or social media that way. Yeah, you know, I um, I feel like, yeah, I'm like kind of old school in that way. And there was... Um, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, um, let's, it was probably like 2008 or something. It was pretty early. And I was reporting on a story about MySpace because that was my beat at the time. And I think maybe we were even like competitors and reporting familiar. about MySpace. Yeah. And the, um, the COO was leaving and I think I had this as a scoop and I was really excited and so then I had it the story was in the system was about to go out and then I tweeted it 
And I got in really big trouble at the journal yeah. um, from from some editors who um, who didn't want me to. Or it was everybody was still trying to figure out yeah. like social media policies and what's right and what's not right. And so they said that that was not appropriate. And I'm um, I'm like a very conscientious person, and I don't really like to break the rules. And so then ever since then, I was like, well, you know what? That's what for me. What is, yeah, that's kind of enough for me. And I think that it is a very valuable tool for kind of putting your stories out there and searching and seeing what other people say. And my DMs are open so people can contact me that way. And um, I, I kind of tweet stories, but I also um, am really, with my journalism, really trying to follow the facts and let my stories speak for themselves. I don't really know why anybody wants to know what I have to say about anything. You know, I think my reporting is really strong, and that's reporting, what I. Your reporting is prize is prize winning. Um, what's what's next for you? Is do you follow this? Is this now a beat for you, or at some point do you go back to conventional media and business reporting? Um, I'm going to keep reporting. There's there's more stories. There's more stories to, to come out. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the th- questions I've been asking. People have been asking sort of since the first wave, or since the the. The uh, Weinstein stories and all the stories that preceded them was was how long does this go on for? It seems like it slowed down a little bit. I asked this to Kara Swisher. She bit my head off. What, like, what did oh. she say? Well, she said, I said, it seems like the energy around this story is dissipated or is slowing down. She said, no, no, no. This is now like sort of moved into politics and that's where that's gone. Right. Well, I think it, it's interesting because the first wave of stories really unleashed this Me Too movement on social media and – what I found so fascinating about that is like we had always heard these statistics about the number of women who and and men too who had been victims of harassment or abuse, but we had never actually heard those stories. And I think as a culture that was just really um like I was just heartsick listening and feel like yeah. feeling a lot of this. But I think to actually create change in a society, it's more than people telling stories. It's looking at the laws that have allowed this issue to perpetuate. It's examining our HR systems. It's looking at these NDAs that are used to silence victims but then allow the predators to continue their bad behavior. And I think that there's a lot of reporting and thinking about those issues that is yet to come. Do you worry that without a Harvey Weinstein, without a Louis C.K., without a Shane Smith, um, very high-profile uh, bad actors that the people who are harassed by just random or just low-profile people who are their hotel manager, right, that those the stories have been written about, but they don't seem to have the same impact. And do you worry that at some point sort of you've gone after sort of the, the, the biggest, most obvious names have been taken down, that that's, that's the thing that makes the story's energy dissipate? That's a good question. Um you know, I think there's still, if you do the reporting in, in a really great way and you're able to um, use those allegations and those stories to uncover like, a broader systemic issue, then I think that if it's a great story, then you'll be able to figure out a way to have it resonate. I hope you're right. That's a great bit of optimistic, uh, it's a great optimistic note to go out on. Yeah. Should we leave it there? Sure. Emily, this is great. Thank you for your time. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in on a busy week. I appreciate it. Look forward to reading your stuff in the New York Times, not on Twitter. Not on Twitter. Well, you can can read my tweets. I can read your tweets. They're not that exciting. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. And thanks to you guys for listening. As always, we only ask one thing in return for this free show we make for you every week. Tell someone else about this show. If you like it, if you don't, keep it to yourself. Thanks to our sponsors. 
Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits this show. Thanks to my producers, Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. I will see you then. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. In a world of incessant data tracking, one tech startup is working to create a brand new internet, and that startup is Pied Piper. It's a totally decentralized, totally awesome, and too-good-to-be-true network, only on HBO's Silicon Valley. This tech could make the world a better place. Catch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. HBO.